Hi, everyone. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. All right, we're going to try something a little different for our summer episodes. Rather than going on a summer vacation like many podcasts do, I decided to do a form of a mini book club. For each episode, I will be sharing some key summary items and my thoughts on a book I'm reading. I'll also provide some suggestions and questions I invite you to consider as you hopefully read the book. Additionally, we are planning for another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of summer, where I take your questions and share my thoughts, and that can be on anything related to these summer book episodes or anything in general. This time, you get to be part of the episode. Simply leave a message with your name and question for me at 877-373-6850, extension 1. And we'll also put this information in the show notes. So I'm super excited to have these summer episodes and this little detour, and let's get started. So today is the end of our summer plot twist of doing these mini book clubs. Our next episode will resume to our interview format, and I'm super excited for my next few guests and the wisdom, insights, and inspiration they'll bring to you. So for our final mini book club episode, I am digging into a new book by Jim Dietert called Choosing Courage. He is the world's foremost expert on workplace courage. And since my work to rehumanize workplaces and equip all types of people to show up as leaders anchors on courage building skills, I was really intrigued to dig into this book. So first, here is how Jim defines workplace courage. He says, I define workplace courage as a work domain relevant acts done for a worthy cause despite significant risks perceivable in the moment to the actor. And then he says, to put it more simply, in more layman's terms, workplace courage is taking action at work because it feels right and important to stand for a principle, a cause, or a group of others, despite the potential for serious career, social, psychological, and even physical repercussions for doing so. And then he goes on to say that workplace courage comes in many forms. It's everything from speaking truth to power and to peers and subordinates and other stakeholders whose behavior might be causing problems or falling short of what's possible. And it also includes acts aimed at personal or organizational growth, such as maybe taking on stretch assignments or owning bold initiatives and innovating within or beyond our current organization. And then he goes on to point out that these acts are everyday opportunities for courage. They're not some big, huge, grandiose acts necessarily. Yet at the same time, courage in the workplace is really in short supply. He writes, whether or not we are willing to admit it, most of us want to be liked. And given the intense pain that social rejection can bring, we certainly don't want to be disliked. Hence, it's a natural to view life and leadership in particular as an extended popularity contest. Consciously or not, we avoid doing things that might anger or alienate the people whose approval we seek so that they'll continue to like and endorse us. 
So I just want to pause there because I was thinking about this and I see this so often, even people who say, oh, I don't care what others think. That's really kind of a facade and they really tend to. And what it makes me think about is Amy Evanson's work on psychological safety, right? If we are so worried what other people think or we don't think that it is a safe space, that's problematic and that we need to have these fearless environments. So I really appreciate Jim's tools in this book on showing up more courageously at work and why we need it. And I think there's other pieces that also have to be considered here because we can't expect somebody to show up courageously if they don't feel safe in doing so. And that is really leadership's role team by team to create that safe environment. We call it creating fearless environments. It's one of our rehumanizing principles. And it also really makes me think of Brene Brown's work of there's some inner work that we have to do in courage building skills from her research to be able to do this. And if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know that I'm a huge fan of Brene. I was fortunate enough to certify with her a couple of years ago as one of her Dare to Lead facilitators. And she's now 11 years into research on the future of leadership in organizations. And her research has found that our future demands braver leaders and courageous cultures. And she looks at four skill sets of courage. And where I see Jim's work intersecting, he also points back to research that we cite in the work we do with individuals and teams, talking about how our brains perceive this social rejection the same as physical injury. And really, the threat of social rejection is also perceived at the same rate of the threat of physical energy injury. So when we perceive risks for being courageous increasing, our willingness to act actually goes way down. So we have to create these fearless environments and equip people with the skills to be able to show up more courageously. The problem is that being courageous is how we fulfill our obligations to others under difficult circumstances. This means that choosing courage in key moments helps us build the legacy we want and avoid the regret we don't want. And furthermore, acts of courage at the work can protect others and help solve problems and avert disasters that lead to innovation and growth. So there's this need for it, but then we've got this physiological thing happening in our brain that says, whoop, not safe, don't want to go there. And so with all of that as background, this book is broken up into three parts. The first part is about the nature of workplace courage. The second part is about how to be competently courageous. And the third part is what he calls climbing your courage ladder. So I want to dig into a few key parts that I just found really insightful that I think are useful, whether you read the book or not, or not. although I would encourage you to, of course, go out and read the book and let me know your thoughts as you read it. So here's some highlights for me that stood out from part one, the nature of workplace courage. Jim discusses the importance of power dynamics in the workplace and what this inherently can do to us. And he writes this. He says, evolution favors self-protection. We have primitive brain components that help us start to protect ourselves before we even consciously perceive danger or use more recently evolved parts of our brain to process whether it's real. And memory and behavior activation systems that favor bad over good and false positives. So like you think there's a snake when there's not, right, Um, over you perceive an actual snake. And one of the things that he did is he created this instrument called the Workplace Courage Axe Index to measure various aspects of workplace courage. 
One of the parts includes 11 behaviors that represent a fairly comprehensive set of ways that people with less power can do worthy things that are risky. And I'm not going to go through all of them um, by any means, but it's broken down into two different aspects. Uh, the first, when he's talking about truth to power from a courageous act standpoint, he talks about challenging authority figures. And just a couple of examples are speaking up or standing up to a boss about their unethical or illegal behavior, uh, speaking up to a leader above one's direct supervisor about others' unacceptable behavior, or uh, challenging or pushing back on your direct boss about strategic or operating policies or practices. So those are just a few examples of challenging authority figures. And then the other aspect, he talks about demonstrating agency. So an example of that is advocating for subordinates or peers, um, admitting one significant mistakes to a boss or higher up, those types of things. So he talks about in addition to speaking up to people when there is this power differential, Jim talks about the psychological and physical risks at work that we must pay attention to. He writes, humans are social animals. We need social acceptance nearly as much as we need food and water. And the isolation that comes from being ostracized feels like social death. It's no surprise then that we're pretty careful about doing things that might lead to rejection by the pack. That's why taking a stance at odds with the views or wishes of those around us at work often involves sufficient perceived risk to make it an act of workplace courage. And so in spite of this, he shows through all kinds of stories and examples how opportunities for courage show up in interactions with all kinds of stakeholders. And he talks about how it really requires putting our values on the line. And I will say as an aside, first, we actually have to be clear about what our values are, which if you've listened to any of my podcasts or read any of my stuff, you know I'm a huge fan of doing the work to get clear about our own personal lighthouse. So getting clear about our why, our how, and our what, and also getting clear about our values. What are our two or three core values and what are the behaviors that tell us we're both in and out of alignment with them. And it's just such a game changer. So I will just do a little plug. We are doing our own Build a Lighthouse workshop. Our next one is September 16th, if you would like to clarify this for yourself. But setting that aside, he he then moves into this whole idea of once we have that, we have to build our own what he calls courage ladder. Um, and if you imagine a ladder, right, you've got the bottom rungs, you've got the top rungs. And so he said, you know, you start at the base with some just small, relatively small things you could do fairly soon that would start to practice and be a little more courageous. And then as you get further up the higher rungs, you put things that you would love to be able to do more frequently or skillfully, but that feel really risky or beyond you right now. So you have these different rungs of a ladder, right? And you're kind of starting small at the bottom and kind of getting more courageous and more risky, but more important to you as you go up. Um, and so that that top is really like kind of your beacon that you're reaching for. And it reminds me in the Dare to Lead curriculum, we start out the whole program with your call to courage. You know, where's somewhere that you want to be more courageous in your life? And really, what does that look like? So the more specific we can be as we fill out our courage ladders, the better. And so then once we know where we currently stand with regards to our own courageousness at work and we're clear on our values and we've defined our own courage ladder or call to courage, 
Then this is where part two of the book kicks in. How can we be more competently courageous? And so here are just a few highlights from this section that really stood out to me. And the first part seems like it should be common sense, but I think it's worth revisiting. And that's that before we can expect ourselves to act courageously, we really have to have the right conditions. And it starts with who we're being with others and the relationships we build. We have to start with a background of relatedness with other people where they know we're well-intended, they know our heart, they believe that we care about them, have their best interests at heart, etc. And we've established our connection with them as well as our competence. So he talks a lot about making sure that they see your warmth and other things. And I know Brene Brown often cites research showing that we are neurobiologically hardwired for connection. So if you're someone who is extremely task focused or wanting to just kind of get things done through people, that's not going to be very courageous. You need to really establish that relationship. We always say that we don't change systems. We don't change culture. We don't do any of this in a bubble. It's not a solo journey. So we always, always start with building relationships. If you think about it, if you have a relationship with somebody, you're more willing to bend over backwards if they come to you and ask for help, or you're willing to be a little more forgiving when they mess up and their humanity gets the best of them. If you don't have that relationship with them, it's so much easier to leap to judgment, to be dismissive, to not want to offer help, all of those things. And so I cannot emphasize enough that we really need to invest in relationship building. And then the next part of being competently courageous, he says, is to choose our battles. We have to get really clear of when we honestly need to just let things go, right? Things are not going to be perfect. We don't need to sit here and stand in judgment. We have to kind of say, hey, this isn't worth it. And then when is it? Yep. You know what? It really is worth engaging. And this ties back to knowing our values and using them as that lighthouse and as a guide. Here's how Jim puts it as it relates to being true to ourselves. He says, clarity about key values and goals also helps a person know when they have to act because, quote, this is who I am. It's about an obligation to ourselves, not just to the requirements of a broader occupational or moral code. A realization that if we don't act to defend our core values, identity, or humanity, no one else can or will do it. It's the clarity that we have to act because it's the only way to feel authentic, to feel proud of ourselves rather than like a fraud in our own skin. And I just think that is so powerful because, again, it's a discernment of when do I have to act because it's the only way I can look in the mirror, be in integrity, be authentic to who I am versus when am I, you know, judging McJudger pants and sitting there on my high horse and being run by my ego, that discernment is so critical. And again, knowing our lighthouse helps us do that. Um, We also do exercises in the Dare to Lead curriculum that help us recognize kind of when we're emotionally hijacked and when we're in that righteous mode versus that curious mode. And why that's important is one of the other things that Jim talks about in this section is that we have to also be emotionally aware and knowing our own reactions and knowing when we're emotionally hooked. And, you know, you look at any of the research out there and emotional literacy is lacking across our population, across our world, across our country. So another plug, I would say, if you have not read or looked at uh, Permission to Feel by Mark Brackert, I would highly, highly encourage digging into that and helping really use his ruler model to build more emotional 
literacy so that we can name our emotions, recognize them, and then do something with them. The other thing that Jim writes about that competently courageous people do is they pay attention to timing. They recognize that even the most reasonable comment or idea presented in the most constructive way possible can still fall flat or lead to trouble if it's delivered at the wrong time. And so he makes a really important distinction as well between it truly not being the right time versus our self-protective brain telling us stories that make it feel like it's never the right time. And they really justify keeping us safe and small. So this is really where we justify our own armor, if you will. Another aspect of being competently courageous is managing the message itself, which kind of seems like a no-brainer, but I think it's important. This is what he writes. He says that if you accept that then a related assertion should also seem reasonable, you have to understand how the other person sees the world and that it's critical. I'm not saying that your values, beliefs, preferences, and priorities don't matter. What I am saying is that understanding your target's values, beliefs, preferences, and priorities is equally, if not more important. And when I was reading this, what it made me think of is the Arbinger Institute's work of talking about moving from an inward mindset where we are focused on ourselves and our vantage point is how all these other stakeholders are impacting us, our needs, our objectives, and our challenges. So like either me as an individual or my team or my family or my department, right? So you can kind of go me very myopically or me more broadly, but it's really all about how these other people are impacting me. And really what he's saying here is instead we need to turn our vantage point outwards and start to have an outward mindset where we are paying attention to the impact we are having positively or negatively on our stakeholders around us. And we are seeing them as human beings, recognizing they have their own needs, they have their own objectives, they have their own challenges, and we recognize they are just as important as ours. And then we look at how we could adjust our efforts to be more helpful. And that is such a game changer. We talk about this in our book, Rehumanizing the Workplace, and give examples of exercises that we do with groups to really help them shift from that inward to an outward mindset. That being said, one of the things that I took away from this section that I will say rubbed me a little bit the wrong way is he starts talking about, first of all, he talks about people as a target, which kind of bugs me. It seems like we're not seeing them as a human, but a target. That aside, he says, um, you know, you have to start to look at their interests as currencies with which you could bargain. And I will just say with that, there was there, I, I want to push back on that a little bit because I, I think he was well intended here. But what that sounds like to me is it's not really an outward mindset that really what we're doing is we are seeing other people as a vehicle. If they're my target and I want to look at how I can bargain with these currencies, I'm seeing them as how can they help me? And I'm not considering that they have their own needs, objectives, and challenges. So I feel like he kind of flip-flop here between an inward and outward mindset. So I just want to make that important distinction because, yes, we need to care about other people. But it's not about, ooh, I'm going to consider that so that I can figure out how to use that to get what I want versus, no, I see them as another human being. And this is a collaborative process. This is a relationship-building process. And this is a a, a win-win. So when I'm managing my message, I need to look at... You know, what do I need to say so this person will hear me? But it's not about like shoving something down their throat. And I'm not necessarily saying he was saying that, but there was some writing in there that just kind of was like, I think we got to be a little bit mindful of language and make sure that we're looking at this from an appropriate lens. 
And and then in this section, Jim revisits the importance of dealing with and channeling emotions, both in ourselves and others. I will just say that this is why being emotionally literate is so important because we will have our own emotions to deal with. And our acts of courage can also elicit an emotional response in others that we have to manage too. What's interesting is Jim's research found that those people who are able to effectively manage emotions both in themselves and others are far more successful in being courageous at work. And it makes sense. One of the things that Brene talks about from her research is that one of the barriers to courage is actually dealing with feelings and emotions that we don't want to deal with it. We don't know how to deal with it. We also get stuck in setbacks. There's a lot of synergies that I see here and why emotional literacy and learning how to lean into the discomfort of vulnerability is essential to being courageous. And then last but not least with being competently courageous is making sure that there is follow-up and we're taking action after the fact of a courageous act. And he also says we have to recognize that persistence is needed for almost any systemic or deep-seated behavior change, meaning that we have to be courageous and follow up over and over at times. And then this brings us to the last part of the book, which he refers to as climbing your courage ladder. Jim starts out this section with one of my favorite quotes from Anna Eleanor Roosevelt. You gain strength courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You must do the thing which you think you cannot do. And then he poses a bold question. He says, it's time to decide. Will you start climbing your own courage ladder one rung at a time? And I think that We all need to start climbing our own courage ladders. We all need to start answering our own calls to courage. He says that there's three routes to competent courage. First, we can change how we think. That's the logic, he says, behind cognitive behavioral therapy and other things. I will say this is a ton of the work we do of recognizing the stories we tell ourselves and recognizing the fallacies in those stories And checking our egos, that filter we have on reality that has us want to please perform, perfect, and self-protect, and really move from that armor and move from righteousness and move from stubbornness to curiosity, leaning into that discomfort, and really starting to challenge the stories we tell ourselves and own the stories we tell ourselves. The second part, he says, is really mastering new communication skills and really There's a lot that goes into that, but I would say from my standpoint, first and foremost, listening is key. So a previous episode, if you have not listened to it yet, I interviewed Wendy Lynch and we talk about some fabulous tools she has to listen for what matters. We use them in the work that we do. We talk about them in our book. We cannot be effective communicators if we do not know how to listen first. And it's hard to do that if we're listening from a filter of our ego and armor and self-protection. And then if we think about how do we communicate well, then we can leverage rumble tools and curiosity. And one of the things that we love to use that we borrow from our friends at the Chapman and Co. Leadership Institute at Barry Waymiller is the FBI feedback formula. Whether you are giving recognition or growth feedback, you have three components. F is the feeling, how you feel about what a person did. B is the very specific behavior of what they did. The more specific, the better. 
And then the piece that's usually missing is I, the impact. What's the impact that that person's behavior had on you, on the customer, on the business, on whatever it might be? And, you know, if it's growth oriented, a lot of people have blind spots and don't know that what they're doing is unintentionally, hopefully having a negative impact. And if someone doesn't tell them, they don't have any opportunity to change. They may not realize it matters. They may not think what they're doing is a big deal. And on the flip side, if it's recognition, how many of us really are told what an impact we have on others? And so when I think about mastering new communication tools, I think about the tools that that we use that have been really impactful for people. And the other part I will say is being really mindful of our language. And he does give some examples in here of how we can shift some language and, and what really elicits defensiveness versus what fosters openness. So there's a lot that goes into that. But we think differently. We master new communication tools. And then the last path or route to competent courage is then changing or controlling our own physiological responses. So this is where recognizing when we're hijacked or hooked by emotion comes into play and being emotionally literate, having body wisdom, knowing the signs and signals that our body is telling us we're hooked, and then creating some sort of practice to build the muscle to pause, to breathe, perhaps a mindfulness practice. So all of these things that allow us to move from being highly reactive to more intentional. So again, three routes to competent courage. We've got to shift that inner narrative. We've got to do the work to think differently. We got to wait in the messy middle, in other words. We've got to do the work to master new communication tools. And then we've got to change and control our own physiological responses. And then he says, you know, like anything in life, being competently courageous takes practice. And we all have our own courage ladder and route to improvement. I will say that I love that this book gives very tangible and practical ways to do that. And I think it needs to be layered on top of a foundation of self-awareness and doing the work to recognize why we avoid vulnerability, which we know from Brene Brown's research is the same side of the courageous coin. And we also have to recognize that workplaces must create psychologically safe environments in which people can practice being courageous. So I think they really all go hand in hand. I think he's got some wonderful tactical tools here, and I think it's got to be paired and coupled with what we've learned from Brene Brown's Dare to Lead research, what we know from Amy Edmondson's research. And I think you've got a really powerful combination of what does it take to answer the call that our world is demanding, that we all have opportunities to show up more courageously at work and beyond. And so Jim ends with a call to action saying that all progress really depends on each and every one of us being more courageous at work. And so with that, I'll leave you with some questions that I encourage you to ponder as you're listening to this or reflecting on this and perhaps reading the book yourself. The first is, where does your own need for self-protection get in your way of acting courageously at work? The second, how can you use your core values as a lighthouse and guide to ground you and help you decipher when it's the right time and situation to speak up and demonstrate courage? And finally, what would open up for you and what do you see as possible if you did the work to start showing up a little more courageously? So I hope you join me in answering Jim's call and the other work that I mentioned with Mark Brackert and Amy Emmonson and Brene Brown and start to look at where you can be a little more courageous in your life, in particular at work, and we'll be able to have more human workplaces. So I hope you enjoyed our mini book club summer episodes. I look forward to being back with you in a couple weeks as we resume our regular format with some amazing interviews. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. 
If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com, where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Rosie Ward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.